Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to the author of this fascinating and fun new book titled The Lost Princess, Women Writers and the History of Classic Fairy Tales, just published from Reaction Books. Uh, I have with me the author, Dr. Anne Duggan, who really helps us recover the stories of both the heroines that we might have lost out in the fairy tales that we have today, and also the very interesting women who wrote these heroines into the literature in the first place. Um, This book is a great way to find out the kind of real history of stories that might be very familiar, like Cinderella, as well as some stories that, honestly, I'm sort of like, wait, why did we lose that one? That one sounds cool. Um, So the book does loads of interesting things for the history on many levels. So thank you, Anne, so much for being with us to tell us all about it. And thank you for having me. Before we dive into your book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and giving us kind of the backstory of how you came to write this? Sure. So um, I am a professor of French at Wayne State University And I've been working in fairy tales since the early 90s. So I've been immersed in this for a long time. Um, I had written an earlier book, Salonnières, Furies and Fairies, The Politics of uh, uh, Gender and Cultural Change in Absolutist France in 2005, which kind of is back, kind of got me started on um, looking at re-examining literary fields. and kind of we have an idea of what a cla- let's say a classic fairy tale or a canonical literary work is but in reality what we think is canonical or classic might not actually represent what was going on in a particular period um and and so when i when i had the opportunity to write this book um i was approached to write a history of fairy tales and i felt like it was really important to challenge our current notion of what a classical fairy tale is. And our notions today of classical fairy tales often is related to how Disney kind of reframes fairy tales for us, drawing from certain tales by Charles Perrault. Some people don't know Perrault is the author of Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, and his versions are the basis of the two Disney films. So we tend to think of fairy tales, we think of Disney, Charles Perrault, the Brothers Grimm, and Hans Christian Andersen, so male authors, and a select grouping of tales that often have to do with passive princesses. And and so because this is our contemporary canon of fairy tales, our contemporary idea of classical fairy tales, we kind of project that onto the past as if things were always this way. And that is far from the truth. Um, so I felt part of what I wanted to do in the book is, is correct <laughs> history um, and show that 
fairy tales, early fairy tales from the 7th to 18th or 19th century, the classic fairy tales from those periods aren't necessarily what our tales are today. And I also wanted to show that women played an incredible role in the development of the fairy tale genre and that passive princesses were not the rule. Um, it actually, in 17th century France, if you asked someone what a, a princess in a fairy tale was, I don't think passivity would have been the first thing that came to mind, unless they were talking about tales by Charles Perrault, but he was only one among many other tale tellers at the time. So, so I think part of what I wanna do is, is correct history, um, reconstruct it the way it was and not what we're projecting back based on our disnified idea of fairy tales. See, love some myth busting. This is a, <laughs> getting us off really nicely. Um, so the kind of obvious question is if the only writer from uh, the key period in France where a lot of this comes from, if the only one we remember is Perrault, let's start by bringing back um, some of the others, many of whom turns out are women. So can you tell us who are these women that you talk about in the book? Kind of what class are they what who, who are they so the majority of the women are aristocratic women from the old nobility and this is another um, myth that is being debunked in the book that fairy tales are written by for children and actually the fairy tales in the 16th and 17th century were written by adults for adults uh, and the women in so there was a group of women that we refer to as the contes or the basically the storytellers. And um, they were aristocratic women, often marginalized at court. So Donois, who is the center stage of the book because she has the most important legacy. Um, Donois was as important or more important in different periods of time as Charles Perrault. She had the status of the Grimm, Perrault, and Anderson in 17th, 18th, and 19th century in France, England, Germany. Um, and she was part of a whole group of women who were writing fairy tales to contest uh, gender limitations, to contest the oppressive monarchy of Louis XIV. Um, and to so a lot of these women had found themselves in like Donois herself was married at 13 to a man 35 years older than her. So we might understand why she was critical of arranged marriages. Uh, she was locked up in convents much of her life. Uh, Madame de Murat, uh, another fairy tale writer who wrote a maiden warrior tale. She was exiled uh, for a satirical um a satirical writing against the king's wife. So these were all women who had high status but were marginalized within court society um, and who challenged, who, who went a long way in challenging gender norms. So if that gives us a brief sketch of who the women are that are writing these stories and i'm so glad that you highlighted the kind of written by adults for adults aspect because that's going to make a more of what i'm going to ask you make more sense because some of the stories are uh, not child friendly right um and that's what's interesting because of course that is a misconception we have now so starting with cinderella we have the disney version 
I don't think we need to go over what that is. What are some of the alternatives, some of the other Cinderella's, and how did they develop? So I'll, I'll, I'll put a parenthesis here. <clears throat> Another myth is that all of these tales came from oral culture. And there's this oral to written trajectory. And in fact, a lot of the writers in the 1690s were drawing from two Italian fairy, Italian writers, um, Straparola and Giambattista Basile. And uh, Basile was an Italian writer from Naples writing in the early part of the 17th century. And Dolnois, Perrault, and a lot of these other women writers were adapting Basile and Straparola's tales. And Basile has the first literary version of Cinderella that we know of. It's called Cat Cinderella. And in his version, the Cinderella character has a name. She's called Zezola. She's unhappy with her first stepmother. So it starts with the stepmother who's mean to her. And at the urging of her sewing teacher, she actually murders her first stepmother. And then um, the sewing teacher becomes her new stepmother, who's terrible to her. But she's very resourceful. She murders to get what she wants and, um, and is very feisty and is absolutely not a passive heroine. And this is written by a male writer, Giambattista Basile. Perot is going to adapt his tale. And Perot's version is the closest to Disney. And he makes his Cinderella much more passive. Um, she waits for her prince. She doesn't really take action. She's, she's, she embodies. And I think, I think Perot uh, is one of the reasons why we think of passive princesses in fairy tales. Uh, that's what he does. That's why Disney, I think, drew from his versions of Cinderella. So we have Basile wrote this tale with this, you know, murderous Cinderella. Perrault totally domesticates this character. And then Dolnois does something different. So she knows, she knows Basile's version. She knows Perrault's version. And she creates a, a tale taking maybe more inspiration from Basile's resourceful heroine. And her Cinderella, it, as part of the narrative, uh, she kills an ogre by pushing him into the oven, which actually might be the source for Hansel and Gretel, Gretel pushing the witch into the oven. Uh, and I can get more into how Dalnoy in, uh, influenced German tradition. But she kills the ogre. She decapitates an ogress. And what's interesting about Dalnoy's version is that her Cinderella character doesn't go to the ball to get married she she's not interested necessarily she's going there she's having fun um she makes all the men at court betray their their beloved ones because she's just so popular and then she she runs home because the only reason why she has to get home early is so that she needs to get home before her nasty sisters get there and one night after many many balls her she loses her shoe in the woods and the next day a prince finds the shoe. So there's no, no connection yet between the prince and Cinderella yet. He finds the shoe and he actually falls madly in love with the shoe and he gets sick and he wants to marry the woman who, who's to whom belongs the shoe. And, uh, and then Cinderella realizes the prince has the shoe hops on a horse races by her sisters who are also trying to show they're ready to try on the shoes. She splashes them with mud 
she marries the prince, but she what we realize in her version of the tale is the prince's family had taken the property of Cinderella's family. And Cinderella is actually a princess in this tale who's fallen from grace. And she negotiates her marriage and says, I will marry you, but you got to give my family their land back. So we have a very different kind of Cinderella in Donois. And I think what's interesting is that Donois Cinderella didn't just disappear after 1697, 98, when she published most of her tales and that her tale was actually, it became, and this is where I'm going to get into, you know, uh, we have this assumption that fairy tales come from oral culture and then people write them down. And when we follow the history of Donois Cinderella, she doesn't only not disappear, she enters into oral culture. So there are versions that we can trace from Donois and another parentheses, Donois tales in the early 18th century were published as individual chapbooks. So they went all over, they were published all over France. There were, so you, you can imagine even if the population wasn't well-educated, someone in a town would get a version, a chapbook version of, of her version of Cinderella read it, share that with other people, and then they tell the story, and then they tell it, and it enters into French oral culture. So there's versions in Poitou of, of uh, Donois' fairy tale. There's a version that made it to French Missouri that is a direct descendant of Donois' Cinderella tale. It was actually quite popular in Germany. So uh, there's uh, Ludovin von Hochshausen told the Grimm's a version of a tale called Tiny Ears, which is the Donois, a folklorization of Donois' tale. And it actually made it all the way to uh, Czech Republic. And Bozema Nemkova, who was a really important Czech woman writer, uh, activist, feminist, uh, and folklorist, she also has a version of Donois' fairy tale that she penned in collected I don't, it's not clear if she heard it, if she, um, where she got the version of Don West tale, but she includes it in her collection of Czech fairy tales. So we have this tale that went all the way to, for, on the one hand, to Missouri, French Missouri, to Czech Republic. What an amazing um, story in and of itself and to trace it. Are there any other legacies or tracings of the different Cinderella stories that we can see through history? What is one interesting thing, and this is uh, kind of a side note, one thing I realized when I was looking at these different oral versions of Cinderella is sometimes you have Perot's version is becoming folklore, Donois' versions becoming folklore, and there are versions that blend motifs and themes from both of them. So uh, so Donois, um, in some of the adaptations of her Cinderella tale, which is called Finetta Syndrome or Finette Cinders, um, you might have a glass slipper or a slipper, and in her version, it's a mule. Um, one important legacy of Donois' fairy tale is it became, it fed into a Czech East German film called Three Hazelnuts for Cinderella. Uh, which came out in the 70s, and to this day, if you're in, if if you know anyone who lives in Germany, 
it's a must see. It's it's a film that people watch all the time to this day. And uh, and so one, I suppose, surprising uh, fact that I found in doing this research and researching the legacies is that Donwa was, uh, that her tale had an impact on this very important um, East German Czech film that is popular in Germany and Norway and Czech Republic to this very day. Hmm. What a fun thing to discover. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to ask you about another story that we might think we know, but the history is actually quite a bit more interesting. Um, Beauty and the Beast. This one seems almost like a whole bunch of stories came together and they were not always, these components didn't always exist in the same story. Can you tell us about this? Right. Yeah. So Donois was really interested in Cupid and Psyche. And Cupid and Psyche became a very popular tale in the latter part of the 17th century. There were theatrical versions. Um, La Fontaine has uh, a, a version, a written version. Um, so it was it was in the air. And Delnois kind of, she has two tales that draw directly and indirectly from Cupid and Psyche. One is the green serpent, which is more closely related to Cupid and Psyche. But I love the twist she gives because in her version, both the heroine and the hero are beastly and they both have to become beautiful. She has another tale that is more immediately the grandmother, you might say, of Beauty and the Beast. And it's a tale called The Ram. And The Ram is the closest tale we're going to see before we actually have what we're going to recognize as Beauty and the Beast. And what I think is so interesting about her tale is that in her animal bridegroom tale, uh, The Ram actually dies at the end. Uh, she becomes queen, so her father hands her the crown. She becomes a queen, but she loses her beloved, who dies at the gates of her kingdom. And I think it's hard for us to imagine that the first version of Beauty and the Beast that we would recognize as such, the beast dies at the end. And then in seven, in this in the 18th century, in the 1740s, uh, Madame de Villeneuve, Gabrielle de Villeneuve, rewrites the ram, basically, with some elements of the green serpent, uh, Donois' other tale. But she makes the beast, as we know the tale today, the beast lives in the end. Uh, and then after Villeneuve writes her, and, and actually Villeneuve's version is very interesting because it almost takes us through this historical transition with respect to women and gender. So Donois, we end with this strong heroine, um, maybe the woman who can't have it all, but she chose her career over her relationships, you might say, although it wasn't technically her fault the beast does, but here we have this strong woman at the end of the tale. In Villeneuve, there's these backstories where we have these Amazonian queens and, and that's sort of the past. And Beauty, who's a more domesticated heroine, for me, is the heroine of the future. So we have Villeneuve's version has a mix of kind of Donois, strong women, but who are the women of the past. And then we get to Le Prince de Beaumont, which is the version that we know. 
uh, the version that Disney's film is based on. Um, Le Prince de Beaumont's version was actually explicitly written for young girls. It's more explicitly pedagogical. And there are the, the, you might say the strong women, the sovereign women that we saw in the earlier versions of the tale are gone. And, and it's more of a very much a middle class tale. So just following that one tale, we can see how gender conceptions of gender and women's place in society is changing. Um, and we can also look at Beauty and the Beast as a correction to the ram that we have Villeneuve and Le Prince de Beaumont who didn't want to let the beast die at the end of the tale. Sobering account, really, tracing all that through. Um, similarly with Cinderella, are there any legacies? Are there any sort of ways that the stories that we're maybe less familiar with actually have lived on? Yes. And, and that was a surprise to me too. And that's why I think this book is a beginning of research because I think there's so much more to be done. But a lot of critics um, and scholars had this idea that, okay, so Donois wrote these tales and these other women wrote these tales in the 1690s and then they disappear. And what I found is the ram, for instance. So, you know, we think the ram just disappeared. We have no idea. Many people don't even know the story exists. And when I was doing my, my research and kind of tracing these legacies, I found that the ram actually took on a whole new life in England in the 19th century. So there were many different adaptations. One of the problems in tracing Donois legacy in particular is that in England, her tales were published under the name um, either Queen Mab Tales or Mother Bunch Tales, and they weren't always uh, attributed to her. But the Ram was one of the tales that was published as a Queen Mab Tale, as a Mother Bunch Tale. And many writers in England uh, rewrote it in very interesting ways. Uh, I found that versions targeted at a more child reader the hero and heroine either both die or they both live. And part of me was wondering, you know, is it possible for a woman to be queen after he, her beloved dies? Is that, does that fit in the gender ideology of, Vic, of you know, Victorian England, for instance? Is that a possibility? Um, so is she killed off in those children's versions because it just doesn't fit that ideology. But then there's also, also the other versions for children, they resuscitate, um, the, the editions create a fairy that doesn't exist in the earlier versions that resuscitates both the uh, heroine and the beast. And there's a happy ending. Um, and that could also be influenced by the circulation of beauty and the beast tales at the same time. Um, and I found a very clever version of the Ram where it's almost, um, I'm not going to be able to reproduce it uh, orally right now very well, but in order to understand this clever poem, which is about a queen who loves mutton and a king who loves drink uh, and, a, and a princess who loves Prince Fleecy, who is actually not a Ram, but bears the traces of the hero. Um, and in order to understand this poem, it means that everyone knew 
the story of the ram, if that makes sense. It's like a poetic version that in order to get the joke, you have to know the fairy tale. Right, which like someone doing the, an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet relies on everyone knowing what Romeo and Juliet is. Exactly, exactly. And so that means that this was well-known enough that people could get the joke. So, so that really struck me. Um, with The Green Serpent, which is a tale, um, it's, it's a stranger tale. It's a much longer developed tale. Um, but I thought it was interesting. People will talk about, you know, Ravel, Maurice Ravel, the um, French composer, uh, did this Mother Goose suite. And when we hear Mother Goose suite, we hear Perrault. But actually, he has little um, parts of the Mother Goose suite that correspond to Beauty and the Beast, but also the Green Serpent. And Ravel used to babysit for some friends of his and would tell the children the story of the Green Serpent, among other tales. So we can see that the Green Serpent also coexisted with versions of Beauty and the Beast through the 19th century. Again, this idea that her tales didn't just disappear in the 1690s, after the 1690s, and even coexisted with the tales that the Green Serpent and the Ram influence, meaning Beauty and the Beast. So now that I've asked you to excavate for us, kind of, oh, wait, there's more to stories <laughs> that we do know. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about a story that at least I didn't particularly know before I read your book. Um, can you tell us about the white cat and why it was so popular and has lived on? That is uh, a really interesting, so, and it's hard for us to um, grasp how popular this tale was. And one insight I got into that was um, Jennifer Shacker has a great book, Staging Fairyland. And that book actually helped me with my book. And she has this excerpt from a fancy dress ball at the Marble House or something. And, and you have all these British aristocrats dressed as characters from classic fairy tales, what were considered classic fairy tales in the 19th century. And the white cat is one of the fancy dress costumes that one of these elite people were wearing. And actually about almost half of the fancy dress costumes that are described in this article about the fancy dress ball are from Don Lest tales, like Prince Jerry, uh, and other other characters. So the white cat was, it's hard to say why it was, one of the reasons why I think it became popular in the 19th century, um, it's, it's a tale that combines, uh, there's a Rapunzel backstory to the white cat. And the white cat is basically this prince has to, um, there's a, a king with three sons he sends them out first to find the smallest dog in the world. Then they go on a second quest to find the, the finest cloth in the world. And they have to come back with the most beautiful woman in the world. And on each of these quests, the youngest son finds himself at the white cats. He, he goes through the forest and finds this amazing castle and this beautiful white cat who is the sovereign of this castle. He spends a year with her. At the end of the year, she helps him with each of his quests. And then in the end, she is the most beautiful princess and he marries her. Um, and in a certain point in the narrative, he finds out her backstory um, and, and how she got transformed into uh, a white cat. 
Um, so the story, so it was, we know it circulated, but I think what ended up making it really popular in the 19th century is that it got adapted to the stage in France and in England. Um, in England, there were at least six different playwrights who did adaptations of the white, of, of the white cat on the British stage. And in France, um, there were these very famous uh, vaudeville fairy, I guess a fairy would be a musical comedy based on a fairy tale. And the, it, they were, the Cognard brothers were very famous and dated a version of the white cat. And that became one of the most iconic stagings of a fairy tale in on the Parisian stage, but it had its equivalent um, it was popular in many different adaptations on the British stage, um, particularly the version by James Robinson Planchet, who was kind of, I think of him as the equivalent of the Cognards in England. So I think these stage versions kind of helped foster the popularity of that particular tale. And uh, in France, there are uh, one of the first, the first photograph of the inside of a theater was a staging of the white cat, uh, which shows again, the popularity, even though, you know, it's incidental to the history of photography, but the idea that that is the play that was going to be photographed for the first time in the history of photography is, I think, shows the importance of that particular uh, staging. And I think that staging, um, influenced uh so department stores like le bon marché was the earliest french department store and uh the chocolate company poulain chocolat they had adaptations um you would get these chromos you'd get uh, if you went to um Obo, the, the department store le bon marché you could get a card that represented part of the story of the white cat and i think that marketing tool worked so well because people knew the the staged version of the white cat uh so so i think that that those theatrical versions really helped stimulate the popularity of the tale at least in the 19th century um and one my biggest surprise with the white cat was that it actually made it into mexican comic book form and that was that kind of blew my mind <laughs> uh and i realized that you know, Spain had recently done, this was in like 1965, the Mexican comic book. And the uh, there was a Spanish version collection, small collection of Don Juan's tales that included the white cat that made it to Mexico. Um, and somehow that was viewed as an important tale to represent in the comic book series. I loved that in the book. I was like, wait, hang on, what? <laughs> Such a fun thing to discover. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, I think when we were talking about Cinderella, kind of, oh no, Beauty and the Beast, how the transition of the story over time um, actually can tell us not just about the story, but also sort of how expectations of women and sort of who the audience is for these things was also changing. Could you maybe take us through similarly what maiden warrior tales are telling us about sort of politics and political regimes over time? Right. So maiden warrior tales, there was a whole group. So Madame Donois, 
uh, Marie-Jeanne L'Héritier, who is a relative of Perrault, who disagreed with his gender politics, and uh, Madame de Murat, these three authors all wrote maiden warrior tales. So they have a tale about a heroine who dresses up as a soldier or a knight, basically, and then goes to war, um, shows that they're they're as good as any man in the field, and uh, and um, they marry the prince in the end. But they they're they're very powerful female figures. They're they kind of become the knight who's better than all the other knights, and it's almost like bringing together these masculine and feminine qualities together in the maiden warrior made them better than a man or a woman in a way. Uh, and those were, they came out of, because some people are like, well, how did that happen that in 1697, 98, you had all these maiden warrior tales? And in France, you had, uh, since the 16th century with Catherine de' Medici, a series of queen regents. And in France, you had Salic law. So there was this idea that women cannot become the ruler of the kingdom. And so you needed... Uh, you needed a support system to justify and legitimate female rule that, that it's okay for a woman, a queen regent to rule the country. And you had this whole, you had um, a lot of, for instance, uh, Catherine de Medici started a series of Artemisia tapestries that were continued under Marie de Medici, who then became queen regent. And you had a whole system of iconography, of um, historical narratives about uh, powerful queens in history that kind of supported and legitimated these women um, as rulers of the kingdom. Uh, so that's going on. And you also had uh, French salons um, emerge in the early part of the 17th century and then thrive throughout the century. So Salons were places where women engaged in writing. Uh, they engaged in intellectual discussions. And, uh, and so you kind of have this period in France where you have a lot of different representations and places where women can, representations of powerful women and places where women can actually exert some kind of power, whether it's political or social or literary and artistic. Um, and I think the maiden warrior tales kind of come out of that context. Um, and those those maiden warrior tales, uh, actually L'Héritier's tale, which is my favorite called Marmoison, had a, a short legacy. It made it to England in, and was published in uh, a couple magazines at the time in the 18th, 19th century. And Donois's tale, uh, Belle Belle or the Night Fortunate, um, made it to England. Planchet actually staged it. And it was such a popular uh, fairy tale extravaganza that it was converted in, in the, is it, I can't remember if it's the 1860s or 70s, into a board game. And uh, in the book, I make a connection between the idea of Queen Victoria and, again, having, you know, this knightly woman. And, and I, think, I think that the context is similar and different. 
And what's interesting when you look at the board game and the British representations of the of the fair, the adaptation, the stage adaptations of the tale, it gets a little bit more infused with uh, British imperialism, and the board game is very much reflective of that um, kind of taking this 17th century tale that had this different context of salon society, powerful women, legitimating women's power. And then in the 19th century in England, legitimating women who are powerful, which, which correspond, you know, which makes sense in the context of Victorian England, but then infused with this imperialistic backdrop. Thank you for taking us through that. I found those connections absolutely fascinating in reading the book. Um, obviously, I was surprised by a few things I read. You've already mentioned a few things that surprised you in the research. Is there anything else that particularly surprised you in the process of researching and writing this you'd like to share with us? You know, I, th- I think one of the things that I'm still surprised about, and, and I think this is where I... I I think I'm surprised that we've missed this, <laughs> you know, that that Dalnois had such an incredible impact on different fairy tale and folktale traditions, and it hasn't been brought together. And I think there's still more, much, much more to be done. Um, I think the extent to which Dalnois tales made it into oral culture in France, Germany, uh, Czechoslovakia, United States is really significant. Um, I think a lot more could be done because a lot of the, one of the background stories that kind of goes through the book is, is the fact that the Grimm's, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, and I think my colleague Julie Kaler, who's done a lot of work on this, but also Sean Jarvis and Janine Blackwell, um, a lot of the Grimm sources were, were uh, women, and women of French Huguenot background. So even the idea that you know, the Grimm's took these tales, oral tales from these peasant women is, is a myth. And most of them were educated women. Um, one of them was even, you know, some of them were aristocratic women and they were of French Huguenot background. So, so it's hard to say if, so when you see a lot of their tales, you can see the influence of Dalnois, and it's hard to tell if that influence is from them being familiar with the literary versions or folklorized versions of her tales. Um, I'm teaching actually today uh, a tale by Beckstein, who was a really popular 19th century German publisher of tales and he has a tale that is it's basically an adaptation of Donois the bluebird uh and I haven't explored that yet but I think I think there's many of these many of these um connections that haven't been explored and I think there's so much more to be done um with the Grimm's corpus with women writers uh in in Germany um and 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 Beckstein, who is a German collector of tales. So I think we've I think I think of my book as scratching the surface. And a little fact that, you know, scholars again, I, part of me I'm like, why didn't people jump on this earlier? But uh, there was a nineteen seventy-three or seventy-four study by Melvin Palmer. 
And he looked at not just Donois fairy tales, but her overall. She also published novels, and her first fairy tale came out in a novel that was incredibly popular. And he basically uh, documented that Donois tale, Donois writings between 1700 and 1740, were the most translated works of any French writer, male or female, in England. And there's definitely an impact on Anne Radcliffe's work, but I think I think my book is in fact the tip of the iceberg, is how I look at it. And I, I think there's so much more out there that needs to be explored to, to really take account of how women, um, because I think sometimes we have this idea that we're resuscitating these women, they were marginal, and we're giving them attention. No, they were they were they were in the middle of it. They were shaping our literary fields. They were shaping the form of the fairy tale. Um, I'm working on an article now, and I, and again, more could be done on Donois' influence on 18th century male writers who parodied the fairy tale, but no one really looked at how closely they read Donois and how much they're integrating motifs from her tales. And and so I think you know, again, my book's the tip of the iceberg. So, I mean, that's very exciting, right? Like, let's see what else is in there, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, and obviously, you've mentioned two things that you're doing next. You're teaching a class and you've got this article. <laughs> is there anything else you're working on um, or looking to work on that you'd like to give us a preview of? I'm actually, so I go back and forth between my early modern hat and my early modern and women and fairy tales. Um, I published a book with some former PhD students I worked with called Women Writing Wonder, where we're kind of showing these 19th century women writers who were in England, uh, France, and uh, and Germany who were really important. Um, so I kind of go back and forth between that kind of work and film. <laughs> so it feels like a jump, but uh, I'm actually looking at, um, tent- I'm working on a book tentatively in- entitled Engage Animation, Tales of Social Justice. And it looks at uh, politically committed uh, animated films by a lot of animators people don't know, but I think they should. Paul Grimaud, uh, Jean-François Laguioni, Florence Miaille, and Sébastien Laudenbach. And um, I guess in some ways it connects to my earlier work because I think animation is often viewed as an, uh, a marginal genre. It's not a serious genre where people are asking serious questions and doing important things. Um, kind of like fairy tales, you know, people, when I teach um, their early modern fairy tales uh, by these women, a lot of students are, are surprised, like, wow, these women were like using fairy tales to criticize the monarchy or they're using fairy tales to criticize arranged marriage. Uh, so, so it connects in that I'm trying to validate uh, a type of art forms that I think merit further attention. Brilliant. Well, best of luck with those projects. And of course, while you're working on them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Lost Princess, Women Writers and the History of Classic Fairy Tales, published just out really um, by Reaction. And thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And thank you for having me. I love talking about fairy tales. (laughs) 